Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 63rd episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Thursday, 9th of July 2015 and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. I must apologise for the large gap since the previous episode. I'm currently run off my feet, working on a new project that should be of interest to all you listeners out there. I'll have more on that in the months to come. This week's show is brought to you by the extremely generous once-off donations of John G, Justin W and Jasper P. And, of course, the monthly subscribers. Thanks as well to the new iTunes reviewers, Skep Poet and Alex C. You can follow the show on Facebook or Twitter and listen to it on your phone with TuneIn and Stitcher. This week, I'm delighted to welcome another Irishman to the show, Chekhov Feeney. Chekhov is the man behind the blog Chekhov.org, where he reflects and theorises on his 20-year journey through leftist politics, science and the media. Chekhov also works as a senior research fellow in the computer science department in Trinity College Dublin. We talk about the good and the bad of radical left-wing organisations, the empirical evidence for the liberal and Marxist worldviews, the need for new theoretical work on the left, and the dramatic political events unfolding in Greece. We join the conversation as Chekhov is discussing his recent work in the field of computational history. I mean, the idea is to build a really big um, repository that you can test all his, the theories of history, big theories of history against. So, like, you know, why did religion did this religion spread, and, or this type of religion spread, and this one not spread? Enough data, um, these things, then we can test all these things. So. Um, some of the first questions, you know, there's some certain research questions that we're directly trying to answer. A lot of the, it's just about making the data available to other people as well. But the, the stuff where, uh, is mainly to do with like, what are the major forces driving um, evolution towards more complex societies, larger scale societies over time? Because this is a real bone of contention between the sort of selfish gene view of the world and the and the group selection camp which i'd be part of and which we're all sort of part of to sort of say that culture follows uh, you know an evolutionary path as well and that it's it, it can't be just reduced to individuals trying to survive that you can have uh, group traits that uh, reduce the fitness of individuals at the expense of the group and and are defended against freeloaders so uh, th- this is a big debate in sort of the highest level of sciences and the whole of the cross sort of the whole of social science is really to do with whether, you know, or wh- whether such things can exist and persist and so on. I mean, the, the group selection stuff is really winning now, I think, very much, because it's just it's, because it does explain lots of stuff that you can't otherwise explain. But uh, there's resistance from some of the old guards, people like Pinker, and some of the media people as well, Pinker and Dawkins and people like that. I'm sure from the right as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it, it's, it comes down to politics in the end. <laughs> Even genetics is politics. So, Chekhov, you have been in the activist community for a long time. Can you tell us a bit about how you found yourself in that milieu? Well, it was a sort of a long story. Um, first of all, I first uh, came across anarchism specifically uh, through Noam Chomsky, his uh, documentary called Manufacturing Consent. And through that, I just became aware for the first time when I was about 18 or 19. Uh, about the existence of anarchism and I read about it extensively and I started then to look for anarchists particularly in France uh, where I knew some people and there was a very uh, countercultural world and uh, so over over a few years of sort of hanging around Europe traveling around going to uh, social centers squatted type of places and so on and meeting quite a few anarchists I became more of an anarchist but I also became more interested in um, in less of a cultural thing and more of a political thing. So I joined uh, upon returning to uh, Ireland in uh, 1997, I think, 
I joined the Workers' Solidarity Movement and was a member of that for the next uh, 14 years or so. Who are the Workers' Solidarity Movement then? So the Workers' Solidarity Movement is an anarchist organisation uh, based in Ireland. It's um, distinguished from many of the other anarchist organisations by having a very um, highly organised model uh, based around uh, meetings, uh, branch meetings, national conference meetings and so on. And it distinguishes itself from most anarchist organisations in that it takes this very seriously. It has a policy of uh, theoretical and tactical unity. The idea here is that all the members at these meetings agree on a common uh, theory and a common tactic in pursuit of that theory, and then they carry it out in unity. It's a it, it's an organization that tries basically to convince the population of the merits of anarchism and does so through both uh, literature, uh, writing articles and so on in support of that, and also by getting involved in campaigns of various types. And what, what were your experiences of them? So they were mixed and varied. <laughs> So, I mean, uh, some of the good things, that people are very uh, genuine in general. People who do that uh, are typically very uh, cooperative type of people. The experience of engaging in a cooperative collective project in, in pursuit of a greater good, I think, is a very positive one. Um, it gives one's life a meaning that it might not otherwise have. Also, it gave me a great amount of experience in the nuts and bolts and the actual practicalities of political organizing, because over the years I, I, I organized a whole bunch of things and came to understand how all of these things work. So this was uh, very interesting and has been useful to me in everything. But eventually I dropped out and this was because there's significant limitations. It's very much a um, the far left uh, model is very much one that depends upon trying to t create an organization of political intellectuals. And this puts real limits on how much of the population it can engage with. Because most people, most of the time, are thinking about other things. Um, and so don't have the time or mental energy or practice or whatever, or even just the interest to become and be political intellectuals. So this is, I think, the real major reason why I eventually came to the end of my theater and said, no, no, this is never going anywhere. And it was because of, of, of this model of, of trying to recruit political intellectuals and trying to have an organization of political intellectuals leaves you very cut off from the world. Uh, and very di it's very difficult to engage uh, with most people because most people aren't at any particular time uh, political intellectuals. So is this something that you see across the, the far left, we want to call it, or is it something kind of more specific to that particular anarchist collective you were with? Yeah, no, no, I, I think it, it's actually, it's a distinguishing thing of the whole far left. I mean, I, I would just uh, describe, you know, the left up into various different cultural niches, depending on, on sort of, mostly depending on, on what circles they, the groups move in and trying to recruit, recruit from. But all the far left groups, and by which I mean the uh, theoretical Marxist or theoretical anarchist ones, like the Trotsky, all the Trotskyists, uh, the anarchist groups, and so on, they all have quite a uh, because because their their common agreement or, or their common model that they all share is a very abstract theoretical one. They're only really and to understand uh, and to be a member of the group and the whole style of the group is to to try and make more of such people. It, it means that, that whereas, uh, for example, uh, what I would, uh, uh, organizations that would put in a different niche would be the old communist parties. They were able to have organizational structures which were able to involve lots of people who weren't political intellectuals just, be, you know, because they were members of some union or their, the party was active in their neighborhoods or, and, and through all sorts of various fronts and, and, and different aspects of the organization. They were able to become much, much bigger. They had the ability to speak to people who weren't uh, very politically involved. Why do you think these far-left groups have, have gone down this kind of restrictive avenue? This is, a very, this is an interesting question, and, and I think it comes down to um, an evolutionary fact, um, which is that it's a model that persists, okay, and, and it persists in in a time even when the left has been shrinking, uh, shrinking for generations. You, an organization that can establish itself like this 
can can survive and organizations that that attempt to go beyond that and into into a much broader space have difficulty even surviving never mind uh, occupying larger spaces it's a it's sort of like a the, as the tide goes out, it leaves these various islands, uh, or uh, as the tide comes in, it leaves uh, islands uh, that they're above the land. Now, now, to get from one of these islands a form of organization that uh, successfully uh, recreates itself to something broader means you probably ha you have to you have to cross some open sea, and that's just very difficult. And what I mean by this is. These organizations are characterized by a very high level of um, of identification between the membership. People are very committed. They identify with the organizations quite significantly. Uh, and this provo provides a, a a bond between the group. Now, it's it's this this will work and create a, a tough group that can weather out difficult times. If you go for a broader group with less uh, with with weaker bonds, it can much more easily dissolve in in difficult times. And I think this is sort of one of the reasons why it's not that the left has clung to such organisations, but the people who've tried to go outside such models and remain in the far left have found that they haven't been able to keep even groups together. What about these left type groups maybe being disrupted by you know infiltrators and things like that does that do you think that that has has any any effect on the direction that they've gone yes i mean i, I definitely think uh this is we know this happens uh the british police in particular have released uh, information about them infiltrating the sister uh, uk organizations of the irish uh, uh Trotskyite parties for example and we know that there has been infiltrations of anarchists as well. I had a, uh, a member of the British Met uh, who was living in my house for a while, sent over to keep an eye on things. Um, so, uh, and so this undoubtedly happens, and I definitely think it it it, it probably contributes to the sort of fragmented and fractured uh, nature of the left. Because it's, I think it'd be quite easy to disrupt. All you'd have to do is uh, be extremely doctrinaire. And which which would would go you know is quite easy to defend within a party and is would have the fact of being quite disruptive in practice. So uh, I'm sure such things go on, but I don't think I don't think that's the core, source of the problem. I mean, this the source of the problem is 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 a model that uh, is is very difficult to scale, and nobody having coming up with some way of uh, of getting outside of of the model of uh, small groups who are committed who are all deeply committed and have strong links with one another is there a, a tendency towards a theoretical kind of sclerosis in some of these movements are they living the theoretical battles of a hundred years ago well i mean I, I definitely think so i mean um i think that that's a huge problem uh it's it's uh, living not just the theoretical battles, but also uh, reenacting the practice. I often think a lot of the far left is like a historical reenactment society for the um, for the glory days of the eighteen nineties. A lot of the things like party newspapers and so on. Uh, it's really difficult to see how they're still effective as they once were in the eighteen nineties. You can see it been quite effective. Uh, publishing your party newspaper and so on, publishing a, your papers nowadays and trying to sell them to a disinterested public that's swamped with uh, instant, instantaneously ready news, to me seems to be pretty ineffective. Uh, and uh, theoretically, as you say, there's, there's been very little, uh, almost no developments, you know, since the 19th century. And I mean, I think theoretically the real thing that the left lacks hugely across the board almost is a focus on empiricism. Um, a lot of the differences between the groups and their most strongly held beliefs are come from a theoretical assertion, you know, are derived from theory rather than having, uh, you know, been tested in practice and shown to work. And a lot of the, uh, and this empiricism, a lot of the things that the left tries, it, it, it evaluates on the basis of its adherence to a theoretical uh, standard of purity rather than to what extent it worked. A lack of, uh, I mean, a, a lack of relevance then leads to a focus on lack of empiricism because no, because if you're just talking and nobody's listening to what you're saying, 
if you're just advocating solutions, then uh, you don't get the chance to test them. So, so I think um, this is there is a huge uh, theoretical cirrhosis, and this is we need uh, things that uh, you know proposals. The left in general needs proposals as to how it can change how it can change society. Uh, to make it more just, that have some uh, evident, evidential weight that we can at least imagine that these are likely to make things better rather than worse. You talk about these uh, things that can be empirically tested. Are there ones that stand out to you that have big impacts for certain theoretical foundations? What springs to mind when you when you say that? Well, well, I'm speaking of this in quite a small sense as well. Like I'm not talking in big theory uh, necessarily. So, for example. I, you know, you can go to left meetings and hear debates on, you know, on what we should do about this particular issue. You know, say the health service is closing some things, and people will stand up and argue in favour of a march or in favour of this or in favour of that. Argue about it from the point of view of what's theoretically correct, and uh, and you just with very very little attention to hang on wait a second, how many people are likely to come out in a march? What are we trying to achieve? Uh, with this, what are we? What is our? Are we trying to build towards something? Are we, you know, a a proper just a focus on on a, a, a achieving numbers and goals and and so on? Um, th- this is this way of thinking. I think you know it, it's just necessary to anything in the world, uh, and it's uh, the far left is typically still uh, arguing things from principle from. Uh, you know, based on what someone said a hundred years ago. Yeah, it always amazes me how few good left organisations around the web, you know, that have real good web interfaces. And, you know, it seems like just such an obviously cheap and uh, easy way to reach a lot of numbers. And it seems to be, on average, you know, really poorly done. Yeah, I mean, I'd say this is just a consequence of people trying to do, people just not having enough resources. I mean, the left groups uh, tend to be pretty hyper, hyperactive and trying to do more than they can properly. Yeah, I think it's still probably a lot of their, their recruitment, which is really uh, one of the big things that they focus on, depends on face-to-face contact. And so they tend to put more effort or their efforts tend to go more in that direction, the face-to-face events, rather than the web, which sort of the web gives you more... Yeah, diffuse outlets, then uh, the, uh, it's more difficult to turn into membership, I guess. It has the advantages of scale, but not that kind of uh, yeah. personal yeah. commitment. That's um, it. So when you, when I hear like all, all these critiques you have and things that I, as not somebody who's experienced, you know, just on the surface seem completely correct to me coming from the outside. Um, what then do you make of the emergence of Podemos? And and how do you put that into context? Um, okay, so, so Podemos is like a you know, it's a slightly different beast. It operates on a different level for a start. And what I mean by this is why I want to link to Podemos is that because co- they come from the far left, and, yeah, and uh, they came out of say a similar thing to the Occupy movement, the uh, I think fifteen M movement or whatever. Yeah, yet they've seemed to somehow manage to turn that away from say, that kind of idea of a protest and then run by intellectuals into a mass kind of party at this stage. Like, what do you think about Podemos? <laughs> well, well, so I do think such things are possible. Um, I think um, that our political world is always vulnerable at the moment because very few, because in the lack of uh, any serious alternatives, also people have, don't, uh, there's a less of a motivation to keep people very supportive of the status quo. And, you know, and there's a general lack of belief in any or in a political solution. So there is an opening and it is possible. It is possible from time to time to launch new things like this. You know, I think Podemos did it, uh, where obviously have been pretty successful to date at doing this. But they did have a much more substantial existing uh, organizational infrastructure and network in place a much more broad culture that they can tap into, I guess. So they're starting from a from a, a better position, I think. And, you know, it's, it's also, it, it was fortunate, I guess, for them that they were able to, uh, that whatever the characters and the individuals and the, the different uh, organizations involved, 
um, they were able to forge themselves together into into something that uh, that could come together. I mean, you, well, I, I mean, you could have seen the same or similar type of things. Or a, 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 I think there was an opportunity in Ireland on the far left for a, one of, or an organisation to grow uh, at a reasonably quick pace. The uh, United Left had um, multiple TDs in the last Doyle, and you know. Had they not imploded, they, you know, they would have had similar opportunity to have a, a electoral success. I think um, it's just unfortunate that, you know, the state of play in Ireland was such that that was impossible. That there's two basically parties who, who hate one another and uh, uh, are, are are much more focused on competing with one another than cooperating. Um, so, you know, so, so I think, I mean, I think it's difficult to replicate any anything exactly from overseas because. You know, Potamus, even though it looks like it came from nowhere, it didn't. Uh, it was based on existing organisations and networks and so on that had worked together before. Um, and and also the, the the particular configuration, I think, of parties and groups and their ability to come together to take advantage of opportunity changes as well. And uh, that's very different between Ireland and Spain, I think. What do you think then also of, uh, I think I read stuff by uh, Pablo Iglesias, the spokesperson for Podemos, where he, in their language and in their in their PR, if you want to put it like that, their political speak, that they kind of totally eschew or stay away from the old rhetoric of the left, the old kind of touch point type topics that, you know, inflame in people, say, negative ideas, and they try to focus more on, say, policy. And, and like, that seems to me to be uh, quite lacking in a lot of left groups that they want to talk about, say, Lenin the whole time or something. Yeah, I mean, they, they want to talk in stuff in, in great uh, abstract uh, principles, you know, rather than uh, the very concrete of how we could make a education policy work and so on. And I, I agree with you there. Um, this is, I mean, this is, I think, one of the reasons why Podemos has grown so strongly that they, their communications and PR is very good. Now, the flip side of this is always that um, if people do issue all these ideas, you don't. Then what are they? What are they going to do? I mean, are they throwing out like? To what extent are they throwing out the idea of class conflict with Marxist language? And as I say, I mean, it, it, this is difficult to know and, uh, until. Uh, they do more stuff, I guess. I mean, they have a lot of local control now in Brazil or in Madrid and Barcelona. So it will be interesting to see which things they put into practice and and how they side on various conflicts. But but I, I in 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 general, I think use of language is it's much easier to make yourself uh, if you use modern language and stay away from our, uh, phrases that sound archaic. It's just much easier to gain support for your ideas. And, and it's just smart that they do this. Uh, lots of left groups are unwilling to do this because they fear uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And if they lose the language, uh, that they lose the theoretical attachment to the importance of class conflicts. But uh, but uh, this just keep, means that they can't communicate to anyone effectively. I think it's a terrible mistake. Yeah, it's like that, you know, the right seem to understand more the PR, the work, the role of PR and propaganda or, or even just simply language. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's easier, I guess, if you're on the right because you don't. People on the left have ethical problems in instrumentalizing the public, where you're sort of dealing with the public as, you know, people that need to be spoken to in a certain way, or they see it as manipulative. But unfortunately, that's just the reality of of uh, group communication in a competitive environment. You have to. Uh, shape what you're saying if you want to get a if you have a particular signal you want to get into someone's brain you can't uh, use your language to get it there because you, you've got to get it into their uh, into their conceptual model before they can even accept it so uh, so it's a yeah, it's a, it's a terrible mistake i think so you came from the anarchist far left. I've been like in the last few years reading and studying a lot of a lot of Marxist economics. What was your impression of Marx coming from an, uh, an anarchist background? So like uh, I've read quite a lot of Marx. I'm interested in economics. So Marxist economics, like again, it has it has failed to it fails to me to, to show much utility. Like it needs to 
concrete predictions is, is what we want from economics. Now, we know that um, neoclassical economic models make concrete predictions that are like empirically wrong all the time. Uh, even in, in Marxist economics, uh, largely died and largely never really uh, took on the uh, challenge of uh, demonstrating it empirically. Therefore, in terms of, to me, it doesn't make, it's not much more than a moral story as to, uh, that's useful to, for, for people to explain to uh, wage workers uh, why um, the division, uh, their labor, they're not getting paid the full value of their labor. But in terms of a an analytic framework for like uh, delving into and understanding the dynamics in society, I just don't think it gives you very much. I just, I mean, there's a, beyond the basic idea that there is class conflicts and things will break out along those lines because there is just a basic economic conflict of interest. I, I just, uh, as I say, I don't, I don't think there's too much useful. Have you read, you haven't read any of Andrew Kleiman, he's got a book called The Failure of Capitalist Production. I don't know if you're aware of that one. It's, I am, I'm aware of Andrew Kleiman's work, yeah. Yeah, it's and, extremely uh, empirical. That, that's, that's really impressive. No, it is, but again... It seems to be the minority for most Marxist stuff, I find. like Exactly. This is a small minority and there's bits and pieces here and there, but like, it's not, you know, it, it's, it, it's very, very little. Uh, basically, in terms of attempts to empirically demonstrate uh, the utility uh, as a predictive model or as a, a analytic model that can tell you something about what you should do. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the most famous Marxist economists are those that like to talk about things and not actually test or show evidence to back them up in any real way. Yeah, no, I mean... I I think so too, and um, it's kind of like uh, it's nearly they they have the function of maybe like a a priest giving a sermon. They do exactly, exactly, and it's it's and you know it just uh, hasn't been like developed into um, more concrete mathematical tools typically. Which you know, I, I mean, I I just think you know the primary function for economics for for everyone left and right is to is to figure out what we should do, you know, what what should we change, and and what impacts that's likely to have, and as far as Marxist economics goes, it do, you don't have a tremendous amount of tools to help you with that, which again is one of the reasons why I think the left has been so uh, theoretically turgid that it, it doesn't have real solutions that are, are it, it even believes are likely to work yeah it's all it seems to me always that something like marxist economics which is to me this kind of dialectical nature of it it seems to just be such a good fit to complexity theory it seems to me like that i would love to to do it myself or to get somebody get some research people working on trying to, you know, model things from a Marxist economic point of view, you know, actually build really in-depth world models and, and test things like that. But there seems to be, I think, a lack of, you know, expertise or, or lack of interest by Marxist economists in that area. Yeah, I mean, there also aren't too many Marxist eco economists anymore. Um, That's it. There's very, very few. <laughs> yes. So, I mean... It's uh, e economists have tended to get jobs, and um, the ones who've got jobs in universities are neoclassical guys. I mean, th this is starting to change a little bit now. Um, there's more sort of uh, new economic thinking around uh, with use of um, complexity mathematics and so on, non-equilibrium economics, which, you know, personally, I would see that type of stuff as actually having uh, more interest in the, than stuff that comes from uh, Marxist economics, just in its ability to give us tools that can, uh, that can go to some extent to predicting the future.
So you've done a, a series of articles on the socialist world view. What were you trying to do in these articles? Well, the most important thing I was trying to do there was actually to, to factor out like the very solid concrete stuff there into a into a concrete model mostly you know most socialist theory and uh, has been uh, has been just uh, verbal and uh, words aren't very you know uh, uh, semantically well-defined things so it's so in taking out a model to, to sort of say well, well what actually does this say about the world and what are the predictions then you can start to it gives you a more solid and clear basis to start to looking at how does this compare to the real world. So really, that was the uh, what I was trying to do there to to sort of look at the theory, pull out the the, the most important basic uh, model that the theory says about the world, and then use that to sort of evaluate the theory empirically in a in a sort of thought experiment way. But against against the world as as it has evolved since the theory was produced. How how do you see the overall socialist theory, like the basic model? What 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 is that basic model? So, so, so the basic model is based around a observation which, which is just in some extent it's obvious, but in other ways it's the base it's the whole basic of socialism, which is that there is a conflict of interest between people who pay wages and. Uh, the employers and the uh, employees, uh, people who receive wages, that the dynamics of, of the economy will work just the same if the employee employers keep all of the surplus, keep all of the profit. Uh, the, the system will keep on functioning uh, the same way, and so th this is a this is a thing that that's very very variable um, within the system. As soon as you've got surpluses, there is a question and there's no uh, the, 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 within, the, there's considerable limits within which this surplus could be divided between producers um, the, the, the workers and, and the employers so we have uh, maybe some of the time maybe the the capitalists get 20% of all the surplus and sometimes they get maybe 50% of the surplus and there's a, a a big range of like values where capitalism can survive yeah exactly where, where the whole system keeps on functioning and so th that gives you something that, that that can be pushed and there's a very real economic interest on either side of, of this divide people want more money because it allows them to gain more social status and buy things and and so on uh, for for all sorts of reasons so it's just so this is 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 according to the socialist uh, world world view this is this should be a constant source of conflict in, in our societies and should be one that increases in uh, severity and in importance as the world has moved from a largely peasant uh, population to a largely wage slave uh, wage labor population so that's like we can you can look at sort of marx's theory and, and extract this model with the prediction out of it now the prediction holds to some extent if you, if you look through world history there has been since the onset of uh, large-scale wage laborers say with the industrial revolution in the 18th century there has been more and more of the conflicts and so on have been at the interface between uh, labor and capital uh, and there's been you know the whole strikes and and so on have become common things much um, and have become moved much more center points into uh, into the dynamics of our society the important things uh, to move our society however uh, it's not it, it's not just that's not to say that it's the model tells you too much it does tell you correctly that this is going to be an important uh, source of struggle but it doesn't really help you to know anything else like which trajectory any particular country is going to take uh, because the predictions were would have been that the um, revolutions were most likely to break out in the most industrialized countries and they did not they broke out in very agrarian societies um, it, it also sort of predicted a gen a general upward curve in terms of the intensity of this conflict through as more and more people became wage laborers, uh, and this didn't happen. Things were much more uh, lumpy than that. So yes, so that's basically um, how you know my analysis of how that worldview and and that theory 
stacks up against reality. And where does the liberal worldview come in and how does it perform? Well, I mean, so the typical liberal um, worldview uh, that, you know, society, uh, societies and our nations, I guess, are more or less act more or less in some imperfect manner as expressions of popular will and more or less, you know, the, the, the public through public debate and the legal system and so on, more, this more or less works out the um, disagreements between various uh, fa- factions and so on. Um, so that's what I call the, the liberal worldview and that we all have uh, all these rights as citizens and these are also guaranteed by the state. Um, and that also that freedom tends to lead to more freedom, I guess, it goes along with that worldview. This this is just not a very good way of modeling the world at all. It, it, it doesn't tell you it doesn't tell you anything. It, it's most many of the things that it would predict are, are contradicted by reality. And it, it just is not an explanatory framework at all as to why countries invade other countries or why any of these things uh, happen. It's, uh, you know, it, it's not a mo- it's not a model that you could build anything on, really. It doesn't really have any worth. So like there's recent uh, empirical work done on the impact that different voters have, I think, in America. And it found that the bottom 70 percent, I think, of the of the citizenry have exactly zero <laughs> statistical influence on policy decisions. You know, this yeah. would contradict, you know, whole scale what the liberal model would predict. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and there are so many examples of uh uh, of of that uh, that the actual outcomes of societies are bear very little relation and are much more in line with a Marxist model where you do have where the state is the uh, executive committee of the ruling class. Um, it, it would predict lots of outcomes like that. That the um, you know when it comes to distribution of wealth or distribution of influence in voting decisions, it's much the reality in almost everything is closer to the mar- what the Marxist model predicts than what the liberal model was. So it, it seems to me like that the Marxist socialist model was reasonably good at describing the how the workings of the society goes, but not very good with their predictions. It seems to be kind of descriptive of, of the state of, of capitalism as opposed to, you know, will there be a proletarian revolution or not? I mean, undoubtedly, I mean, it was a very good for its time uh, attempt at a systemic analysis and look and that appreciated the importance of economics in, in such things but personally I would say it, its major theoretical flaw from that point of view is that it's, it's, uh, the model is just too simple uh, there's much more going on in the world that, that makes a big difference uh, than just the economic forces on people, and particularly identity. I think um, you know, which could be a national identity or some ethnic identity, and so on. Those uh, factors, it turned out, are can't be subsumed by economics, and so lead to much much less predictable or outcomes that just can't be predicted by a, a purely economic model like like the Marxist uh, one was and so this is where that problem comes in I mean to build any sort of predictive model of, of what's likely to happen when you need you need to include all of the most important variables and I so I think if we have to build better models that have better predictive capacity about these things we need to. They need to be much richer. They need to uh, include models of uh, different uh, identity groups and how they interact with one another, as well as the economic forces acting upon them all. How how modelable is that? Do you think? Like how prescriptive or how how kind of objective can it be? Well, I mean, it can't be totally objective because you've got to decide what the important variables you're trying to include are. Uh, and so it's not never going to be completely objective but you know you you can still you can you could produce a model of these things that's pretty generic and that it wouldn't introduce too many more variables but that and could be parameterized for 
different uh, for different configurations of uh, identity groups, um, and included econ economic factors. And uh, did I think you know? I, I think it's it's feasible for sure. I mean, I wish people were doing more of that stuff. How would you say? put in how would you quantify into a model the philosophy of a religion say for example and its impact you know these are the kind of questions i assume that you're you're trying to deal with oh no absolutely um for example uh in some of my work we've been doing modeling on religious systems and so to make them we model the amount of adherence that they have we model the types of rituals that they have um and so on and so forth and to try and come up with uh, one of the important things we're looking for is to what extent people identified with them. And so these are all we can use all of these characteristics of, of religions to to give them um, to draw out uh, these features to what extent they they influenced the, po the population there. So by breaking these uh, things like uh, th these cultural aspects down into quite simple and sometimes large numbers of uh, simple binary variables and we can compare them with one another and, and start to see those type of patterns. Listen, What kind of hope do you have for the internet for for radical left politics? Do you think it's got like it seems to me it's like it hasn't really taken off in any real way? Do you think that there is that the platform offers hope? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> to some extent, I mean, it's the platform. It does it does offer pretty uh, low cost and sophisticated communication across the world. Now it, it's it's you know turning that into a a platform that can unite people and bring people together in large movements i don't think that's necessarily too hard i mean you know that's been done by you know obama did that to a large extent you know um people have done that and and we know it's possible uh, i do think the um the real missing uh factor is the, the content to be able to convince people that this is a real viable alternative. This is is what's missing rather than a particular formula for um, putting together internet platforms or anything like that. I mean, I really think in this case, it's the it, it, content is, is the important thing. The, the content of ideas that you can actually sell to people. So like Mark spent his whole life coming up with you know his political economy to try and defeat bourgeois economy but he didn't really offer what a post-communist society would be like that yeah they had a critique say for example but not a positive uh yeah uh, plan and it seems like that that major theoretical work but that secondary plan that's that that problem we have all our critiques but we we it's like that we need our next marks or somebody to come along and really theorize 
what it is we actually need in to replace it and why it would work and show it would work. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I think this is this would be a very good thing, um, and I can understand why. I mean, why Marx uh, took that decision, and it, it was largely to do with. Uh, you know, he was, as many communists continue to say, uh, is uh, it's difficult. You know, it's difficult enough uh, to you know get rid of this of our bourgeois enemies. And you know, what, once we do, then everything will be relatively easy for us. You know, it's much harder now. So we think about the immediate problems of how we get to that point. And once we're once our enemies have been dispensed with, everything will be relatively easy now. I think people nowadays particularly with the experience of the soviet union don't believe that this is true and don't have a lot of faith in uh, the left's uh, economic uh, ability to make up economic things as they go along and i think this takes away hugely from the ability of the left to convince people of stuff and i do think the left uh, can't really grow on any large scale unless it it comes up with with uh, proposals that are uh, fairly convincing that you know give people good reason to believe that they might work in advance because i just don't think people have that faith nearly all the major left people that are i i look up to nearly all of them have a great reluctance to even talk about what it could be like say chomsky was nearly allergic to talking about an alternative system yeah well, I mean, I think uh, I think p- people who advocate an alternative system have, have should they have a responsibility to to make sure that that what they're advocating is uh, is viable. And I mean, I, I think one of the reasons for this is that coming up with alternative stuff that might work is is really hard. Bring it's much easier to. Uh, to you know, come up with generalized slogans and to come up with stuff that uh, might actually work in practice. And so people tend to shy away from it, particularly uh, when they left groups and they don't have any prospect of implementing anything. It sharpens the mind when you've got, you know, when you're like Syriza in Greece at the moment, when you actually have to uh, try to implement stuff. So it's much trickier. That's true. What are your hopes for Greece then? I think it's going to be cataclysmic. I think there's going to be a big breakdown. It's like they have two completely opposing positions and there is no middle ground. And it's going to be, a, you know, it seems to me like it's just destined to be a, a conflagration. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree to, yeah, to a large extent. I mean, so, so I think the ECB and the Germans have um, are playing with fire. They're willing to let the... Greece go down in flames. The interesting thing will be uh, how they how that how they manage to hold up the rest of the eurozone, I guess. So, um, so, so yeah, I mean, in the long term, I think it's a complete disaster for Europe because they're throwing away any goodwill that um, the multinational entity has towards uh, has with the population. They seem to be this sort of hard uh, accounting type of line that they've taken. Seems to be, you know, I don't know how you can build a, a you know, a new new state with a new identity based on that. So I really think uh, the European project is on the way down at the moment, and this is a testament to that. But I do think the, the Germans are basically are going to are saying to the Greeks, okay, we know that you're going to collapse. We think. We'll be able to hold up, so so go for it. Uh, so yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's not good for Greece. I think they're going to suffer economically considerably. I don't think there'll be an easy way for them to bounce back, and I don't think I think it could, you know, pull the whole of the European Union apart as well. Yeah, it seems to me like a kind of a, a if we look at um, South America and they were under the thumb of the IMF for so long, and they kind of managed to get them out of a lot of the countries and there's a a wave of left progressive governments it seems like in greece we have this it's kind of like you got a bigger battle than just greece it's like they're afraid that all of europe is going to go one way and they're just willing to just let greece go up in flames try and scare people yeah no i I think absolutely i mean a lot of the time it's uh, political parties and uh 
the member states who are afraid of the left opposition. Like uh, Ireland has been one of the most supportive countries of the creditors position, which makes no sense uh, from a on a national level because it's a heavily indebted country. But they're more looking over their shoulders at Sinn Féin in the next election as their threat. And so they're actually uh, publicly at least um, have been uh, very much against their own practical interests. And I think that's happening in Spain as well. I think that's happened in a lot of places around Europe that uh, people are unwilling to cede because of their own uh, local electoral battles. But also, as you say, just because yeah, but the financiers do not like the idea of a precedent of the population of one of the member states telling them what to do or telling them that they can't do something. So uh, I think they they want to really nip that in the bud. Well, on that positive note, Chekhov, I'd like to say thanks very much for coming on the show. No worries. Thank you, Thomas. this episode you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and his orchestra and The Flaming Lips with one more robot you also heard Aretha Franklin singing Mary Don't You Weep and you are now listening to the brilliant King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard with The River thanks for listening and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega and remember If you want to leave a review for the show on iTunes, the instructions are included in the show notes.